I was stunned that of the you know plastics in the ocean, the portion coming from say North America is actually pretty small. And so that's another one where it might not be that expensive to see a big reduction. I think for me, plastic pollution is one key area where I think the attention is kind of lopsided. I think when we think of plastics, we immediately think, stop using them. And all of the treaties are based on let's, how do we reduce plastic use as much as possible? But actually the problem of plastic pollution, like plastic going into the ocean is not about using plastics, it's about how it's managed. And when it comes to the oceans, around 0.5% of our plastic waste ends up in the ocean. So it's actually much more effective to tackle that 0.5% than to tackle the 100% way at the top of the chain. So when you look at maps of, of plastic use across the world, yes, um, plastic use and plastic waste is per person is much higher in richer countries, like we use more of the stuff. But what's different is we send it to land fill where it's closed and managed or we recycle it or, in, or it's incinerated. Most of the, the plastic is leaking into the ocean is more in middle income countries where they've seen very fast growth and very fast industrialization, but waste management has not managed to keep up. So, but they're using lots of plastic, but there's not the waste management infrastructure there to gather it and, and, and to, to, to keep it. So there, yeah, it's a very tractable problem. If you invest a little bit of money in waste management, you can actually put a massive dent in that problem. You look at environmental numbers, have we actually reduced anywhere? Are there examples where our greenhouse gas emissions is, have gone down? Yeah, so on, on greenhouse gas emissions, I guess across the world, it's a very mixed picture. On a global level, um, we did see a very rapid rise over the 1990s and early 2000s. Over the last decade or so, we've kind of saw, saw a bit of a plateauing, like rates are, emissions are still increasing a little bit, but they are going up very, very slowly. And so rich countries in particular have managed to significantly reduce emissions over the last few decades. Like in the UK, for example, emissions have approximately halved. And now some of that is because of offshoring, but not all of it is because of offshoring. So even when we account for that, emissions are going down. Middle income countries, again, it's a bit of a mixed picture where some are starting to see a decline. And then lower income countries, people are getting access to energy, you would assume the emissions there are going up and they are. Yeah, the UK number was quite striking to me because, of course, the whole energy intensification, industrial age, coal starts in the UK. And yet they're one of the countries in that area who's made the, the most progress of all. Yeah, I mean, the, the story uh, of carbon emissions in the UK is basically about coal. Like most <laughs> of most of our electricity used to come from coal. So when I was born, it was between a half and two thirds. And now we're basically coal free. So we've just got coal completely out of the electricity mix, which just makes a massive difference to your carbon emissions. Yeah, the challenge of getting people to understand each of the sectors and what's in the pipeline in terms of innovation that might allow that sector to get its numbers down without having the cost be so gigantic. People know about electric cars and they know about wind and solar, but most of the rest of it probably is pretty opaque to people in terms of emissions and what we might be able to do. Yes, if you split up the world's emissions, there are like the power sector, so electricity, there's transport. Now, those two 
two combined are quite big, but they're not everything. So I think the way I see it is with these sectors, we now actually do have economic solutions there. Over the last decade or so, we've seen plummeting costs of solar, wind, batteries, electric cars. And I think for those sectors, it's now about deploying these technologies very, very quickly, right? That last decade was getting the cost down, this decade is building as much as we and fast as we can. But there are other sectors where we still do need innovation. We need cement, we need steel. Like a big one for me that's often overlooked is the food sector. I think decarbonizing food and agriculture is going to be very, very difficult. So we have this twinned approach where we need to go fast on the stuff that we have now, but we also need to be putting money and research into innovations in the other sectors such that by 2040 or 2050, we have affordable solutions for those sectors as well. I think the rich countries have a few responsibilities. One, they need to get domestic emissions down. But I think the other role that they play is that they need to drive down the cost of these technologies for middle and low income countries. Middle and low income countries cannot face the dilemma of do I lift people out of energy poverty or do I keep my carbon emissions low? But the, the role that rich countries can play is to drive down the cost of these technologies such that there's no trade off, right? The, the cheapest technology is also the low carbon one. So I think that's a one additional way by which rich countries contribute beyond just the climate finance mechanism. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I talk about the cost as the so-called green premium, that obligation not only to get to zero, but to drive those costs down. So the trade-offs for, say, in India allow them to say, OK, we're going to build basic shelter while not dramatically increasing their emissions. The solution that helps with basically every environmental issue is as you get richer your population growth tends to grow down, and then your ability to detect forest fires or build buildings that when there are natural disasters, the death toll goes down. You had that incredible graph of how, particularly in rich countries, the deaths from natural disasters has come down so dramatically, which is actually not about reducing the tornadoes, floods, earthquakes, uh, but rather having some warning systems and resilience to those negative effects. The declining uh, trend in disaster deaths was like really surprising to me. I'd thought that to be an informed citizen, I had to be watching the news all the time. Like that's how I kept up with the world. But when you watch the news, all you see is disaster, disaster, disaster. And if you'd asked me to draw the trend of what was happening to disaster deaths in the world, I would have said that they were the highest level ever. And actually, when you step back to look at the data, it's the opposite. Because of increased resilience, we've seen a really, really dramatic decline. If you look out at 2100, a lot of the models look pretty hopeful because during that time frame, you have a lot of economic growth. Yeah, I mean, the way I see it is we do have the capacity to adapt. We have the capacity to, to make our buildings, our infrastructure more resilient. I think the key there is that we need to make sure that this is inclusive globally. Like, it's going to be the poorest that are going to be hardest hit by this because they don't have the resilience to, to build back. Yeah, so to be clear... Your message is, although being a doomer is not uh, the right way to look at this, the sense of urgency about all the different areas that you talk about in the book is still super high. You'd love to see us making even faster progress. 
Yeah, I mean, my my the whole point of the book is that these are big and urgent problems and we need to really get moving on them. What I'm trying to push back against is more the message of it's too late, we can't do anything about it. I think for me, we've seemed to have flipped very quickly from... You know, this area of kind of fringe denial where like the denial sphere was actually quite loud and quite big. And we've suddenly seemed to like flip straight into it's too late. There's nothing we can do about it. And the key message of my book is like these are hard problems to solve. But I think we are capable of solving them. And it's just not the case that it's too late to tackle this. Well, I'm certainly going to be sending it to lots and lots of people. Just like in global health, we've got to tell the stories of how great the progress has been because there are lessons out of that and keep people engaged, even though the pandemic was a big setback. It's easy in any of these areas, including global health, to feel really like, oh, we're not making that much progress. And so to have the positive data points be in there and to have it be kind of comprehensive, I think is fantastic. So I'm looking forward to all the, the debates that it'll generate. I wouldn't have an impactful book if everyone just loved it and just loved everything about it. It's to, meant to generate discussion. If we're having discussions based around the data, which I've tried to present on the book, then I, I think I'll have achieved something. Core part of the book is not just saying, hey guys, everything's fine, we can just sit back. Like It's a call to action. It's about trying to show where we are, build on the momentum that we've gained through tackling some of these problems, but also trying to show what we need to do next. Well, I, I hope that it will inspire more action rather than reduce the pace of it. Subscribe to Unconfuse Me wherever you listen to podcasts.